Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day. This is a podcast about some of the striking ideas up in the air and up for discussion at the 8th Global Peter Drucker Forum, held every year in Vienna. This year's forum theme is the Entrepreneurial Society, a favourite of Peter Drucker. And with me is one of the main speakers, John Hagel, who's co-founder of the Centre for the Edge, which you'll have to explain to me. It's a wonderfully alluring sort of title. What do you yes. do? It's a research center based in Silicon Valley, and the focus is identifying emerging business opportunities that should be on the CEO's agenda but are not, and doing the research to persuade them to put it on the agenda. And this has become a sort of whole science, this what's going on on the edges of things is much more interesting than what's going on in the center of things, and there's a whole science or part science about studying the edge, isn't there? No, absolutely. I think it's uh, our view, certainly, that in terms of emerging opportunities, they tend to start first on some kind of edge. It could be geographic edges, demographic edges, new technology edges, but edges are where the action tends to be. Inspired, of course, by biology and the physical world, isn't it? That interesting things happen on the edges of bogs and things like that. Exactly. It's all about the periphery. And what do I know if I'm in head office is the sort of business way of looking at the same thing, isn't it? (laughs) Exactly. You've been doing this for quite a long time now. It's It's a part of Deloitte, isn't it, the consultancy firm? Yes, it's part of the Deloitte organization, and we've been in existence now for nine years and doing it for a while. And you were a long-term inhabitant of Silicon Valley before that, weren't you? I've been in Silicon Valley for uh, 36 years now, including founder of a couple of tech startups and working as a senior executive with Atari in the video game business and working with consulting firms. I'll come back to Silicon Valley itself later on, but tell me about The Edge. Um, the things you see that the people embedded in businesses can't see, (laughs) or how you get them to address that? Well, part of our research has to do with the long-term forces that are reshaping the global business environment. I think one of the challenges for most businesses today is that because there's so much pressure, the time horizons tend to shrink. They tend to focus on the next quarter, maybe the next year, and they have a sense that something more fundamental is going on, but they don't really have time to focus on it. So part of our mission is to help them understand how that world is changing more broadly and then what the opportunities are that are emerging on that uh, landscape. Well, there are kind of obvious things. I mean, Silicon Valley, they're they're made to a certain extent in Silicon Valley. So we've got the, the connected world, the difference between the 20th century and the 21st century, almost with a line down it in uh, <laughs> 1999, isn't it? I mean, it's a very sharp distinction. The 20th century company was very different from what the 21st century company needs to be, full stop. Yes, the fundamental transformation required and very challenging, I think. And by the way, I don't think it's just companies. I think it's all our institutions going to need to transform. The simile metaphor that I always use is the way that the coming of printing from movable type sort of begat the modern world 500 and whatever it is years ago. We're going through the same radical transformation with society and our place in the world now as that caused rather slowly, actually, in the 14th, 15th century. 
Yeah, I think one of the interesting things is we've had technology disruptions throughout history, printing press, the electricity, the telephone. What was interesting in, in all of those cases was it was a one-time kind of innovation that changed a lot of things, but it quickly stabilized. With this new generation of disruption, it's driven by technologies that are continuing to improve at exponential rates. And so the instability and disruption continues as opposed to rapid stabilization again. So things like the smartphone hardly existed 20 years ago. I think IBM did have one, but, I mean, nobody knew really what it was. Meanwhile, Apple had been trying out the Newton in Silicon Valley, and that was actually what is now <laughs> a roaring success. But it was an abject failure, wasn't it? For them, yes. <laughs> No, I think that's one of the interesting things is often the early pioneers are either too early or don't quite get it right, and it creates an opportunity for somebody else to come in and do but, it right. But the smartphone, now a tool and a social thing for half the world, actually, simply didn't exist 20 years ago. So here's not just a platform, but a new way of connecting your brain with the world. This is a, a new nervous system, isn't it? Yeah, no, the notion of having a computer in your hand and being able to connect that computer with every other computer in the world, that's quite revolutionary. Yet to get back to your edge ideas, we're only at the beginning of this because only now people beginning to build things on this new platform. Right, to figure out the new practices that are enabled by and in many cases made necessary by these new technologies. Do you, at the center of the edge, spot things that are happening a long way away and bring them faster to the attention of the people who need to know? Or do you spot trends and anticipate what you're going to be spotting in five years' time on the edge? I think it's a, a little bit of both. Part of our view is that some of these trends are actually quite predictable, and that you can, if you follow them, they lead to some very different outcomes, and being able to anticipate them is, is a key value that we provide to executives. Predictable trends, what are they? Well, I think one of the trends is this notion of increasing connectivity and accelerating pace of change, that this world is changing at an ever-accelerating rate. And another thing that we think is quite predictable is mounting performance pressure on all of us. Because of this connectivity, on the one hand, there's opportunity. On the other hand, there's pressure on us as individuals and as institutions. And there was a great billboard that was up in Silicon Valley on one of the major highways that basically asked the question, how does it feel to know there are at least one million people around the world who can do your job? And that question 20 years ago would have been absurd. Well, there may be a lot of people, maybe not a million, but I'm here, they're there, doesn't matter. Well, now that actually is a pretty reasonable question. And a huge political issue. Yes. And today the question might also be, how does it feel to know there are at least one million robots? Well, I was going world? to say, because <laughs> <laughs> that is going to be a, a radical change, which kind of flummoxes people now. I know, go back a hundred years, the car was just arriving, and the predictions were, what happens to all those grooms? Well, they got jobs in garages servicing cars, didn't they, to a, a very large extent. What happens this time round? Any ideas on the edge? Oh, yeah. No, we have a lot of ideas, and we are fundamentally optimists, so we actually believe these outcomes can be quite positive if we anticipate them and, and adjust appropriately. I think in the context of work and automation, our view is it actually provides an opportunity to rethink work at a fundamental level. 
for most people in most companies, in most contexts, work is tightly specified, highly standardized, tightly integrated. And if that's what work is, machines can do that a lot more efficiently than we human beings can. We get distracted, we get sick. But now, if that's what machines are going to be doing, what kind of work would it really be uniquely human? And that's quite different. And how much work will be completely human? For example, I know the IBM Watson project a little bit and uh, wish to apply artificial intelligence to medicine. Well, Watson knows an awful lot about cancer treatment and patients all over the world far bigger range of um, records than any specialist can ever have in his or her head. The role of the specialist, if artificial intelligence experts are right, becomes that of presenting the machine findings to the patient, which you don't need that many people to do that, do you, compared with the range of people amassing information about treatment and conditions in the old world. I think it's not just presenting the information. I do think there is still a role in terms of creativity, imagination, curiosity that set the stage for then going to data sources and doing the analytics to get the answers. But coming up with the right questions is often the most challenging and high-value activity available. And having that human connection, that emotional intelligence of your context and your human emotions. Where do you stand on the idea of the singularity that machine intelligence will sometime in the approachable future outwit that of mankind? And it's then time for us to step aside and give over to the machines, which uh, several people I know argue quite keenly. No, I know. There are a lot of people who have that belief. I, again, hold to the view that there are things that we humans do that uh, will be augmented by machines, but that will still, if we focus on what's uniquely human, we will continue to be able to add value in significant ways. And that's an insight rather than just good old sentimentality, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Because that colors other people's views of this. Absolutely. It's looking at exactly what are the unmet needs that are emerging in this global society and economy. And Where can we add value? And I think it's, again, it's not an either-or, either the machine or us. It's the two of us working together to create more value, the machine and the human being. So you might argue that artificial intelligence in machines needs a new kind of connective intelligence in human beings to make it work properly. Exactly. And that's really the challenge and the opportunity because most of us have been trained to do those tasks in a very machine-like, routine way versus being imaginative, creative, and really focusing on that emotional connection. But of course, that machine-like way was really a product of Henry Ford's not invention of the production line, putting all those things together and creating those Detroit production lines. Then that became the imprinting way that business was done, first of all in goods and then in services. And that was what human beings were allowed to do because there was a shortage of of skilled labor in Detroit when he started building cars there. So that became the model for the 20th century company. And it's not very comfortable, that, is it? 
No. Well, I think the interesting thing, we call that model the scalable efficiency model, and it created enormous wealth and value in its time, and by the way, led to a complete refocusing of the educational system to prepare us human beings to be more like robots, to follow instructions and to do things predictably and reliably. And I think as part of this transition, this change, we're going to have to rethink our educational system. But we're still in this transition from the production line, the mass production corporate world with its hierarchies and, yes, command and control, into something else. We're still feeling our way into that, aren't we? But meanwhile, we've got to have businesses that produce things in in both worlds. Yeah, and again, transition is always a painful and challenging process, so it's not something that's going to happen automatically or smoothly. I think there will be bumps along the road, and I think we're seeing that one of the early consequences of this mounting pressure and these changes is we've got a growing sense of fear and anxiety among people. And uh, you're optimistic about that eventually uh, sort of being reduced? or um, Because we're not going to settle, are we? Things aren't going to settle down, are they? We're not going through this as a threshold step and then things get familiar all over again. They're not going to, are they? No, and I think, again, it's an interesting adaptation because we were conditioned by our school systems to want a stable, safe, protected environment But I think if you go back to what we were as children before we went into school, we loved change. We loved new things, and curiosity was what drove us. And I think we need to restore that and and really amplify that. But in caricature, we're still undergoing the stresses and strains of moving from the 20th century to the 21st century in business and organizations. Yes, across all organizations, I think that's the big challenge for us. Why doesn't this new world of computerized networks show up in the productivity figures? It does it to some degree. I mean, there is has been some modest improvement in productivity, but I think the big issue is that we're just using these machines to do things somewhat faster and cheaper rather than rethinking at a fundamental level what is it that we really could do now that we have these machines. How would we act differently? How would we produce value differently, that's really going to be the key to unleashing the productivity opportunity. So your main message to your clients is think, and think harder than you've ever had to think up to now. Yeah, question the most basic assumptions you have about your business, and even the question of what business am I really in needs to be put on the table again, and then rethinking based on the answer to that, how would I pursue that business given the capabilities that are available? But people listening to that will then say, yeah, but I have to keep doing the things I'm doing already to make the money to start to have the luxury of investing <laughs> in the future. And that's a difficult act for a leader, a boss, or even a corporate entity to embrace, isn't it, to do future-facing at the same time as extracting maximum value from all that embedded capital that's been built up over generations. No, for sure. It's a balancing act, and I think that the challenge is that for most of us, when faced with short-term pressure, that consumes us, and we lose sight of the need to actually also, in parallel, drive change. That's what your job is, to keep repeating (laughs) 
think about the things that you could be doing if you weren't so hidebound by what you are doing. Exactly, and not only what you could be doing, but what you're going to need to do if you're going to survive in this new world. This is not just an opportunity, it is an imperative. You're a long-time denizen of Silicon Valley, where everything is different, and the rest of the world, whenever I'm there, seems kind of grey, not as uh, immediate, not as uh, clever. And then you fly out of Silicon Valley and think about it as I'm going home to Britain, and Silicon Valley seems a little bit weird, doesn't it, (laughs) when you're flying away from it. How does that seem to you, that intensity of Silicon Valley where money is such a measurement and a firm that has only 60 employees can be worth a billion (laughs) dollars overnight almost? How does that seem to you? It is weird, isn't it? No, it is. I think uh, what attracts me and keeps me in Silicon Valley, number one, is a very profound sense of optimism. We're always focused on the opportunities that are being created and this notion of a, a drive. You know, there are people in Silicon Valley who are driven to make money, but I would say the core of Silicon Valley is still driven by this notion of changing the world, making a difference. And that's a very energizing and powerful notion, but it is a bubble. I mean, not everyone thinks that way, and I think that's one of the reasons I travel so much is it helps me to remember that not everything is like Silicon Valley. Are other people going to catch up and overtake Silicon Valley with that intensity of thinking? I mean, it's a what a 50-year-old phenomenon, Silicon Valley, based very much on Stanford University, if you <laughs> analyze the, the flows there, the organizational flows out of the university. Other places so want a Silicon something or other, sheer weight of change is going to mean that somebody else takes over in the end. <laughs> I do think that already we're seeing the rise of other concentrations of innovation. I mean, if I look at uh, places like Shenzhen in China, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, Berlin, even London, are emerging as centers of innovation as well. And uh, I think that's going to become more and more prominent over time. It won't be just Silicon Valley. I hope they had different ideas, because if they all think the same tech-driven way, then we're just going to replicate the bubbles. We need differences. We need diversity from all those different places, don't we? That's the exciting thing to me is the diversity. If I go to Shenzhen, one level there's a, a strong network of connections with Silicon Valley, but at another level they're thinking very differently about the opportunities in part based on the society they're, they're embedded in. You mentioned speed. I was uh, hearing the other day from one of the people rolling out the new f- fourth-generation mobile phone network in India, Jia, it's mm. called, and they are adding 1.5 million subscribers per day. The target is 100 million subscribers in the first 100 days, and they're probably going to outstrip that. This is incredible business enterprise by any scope of the imagination, isn't it? I think that's what's remarkable is in many respects, one of the things in this new world is that small moves with relatively limited resources can scale much more rapidly than was ever imaginable in the past, if you get it right, if you're focused on the right kind of opportunity. Thank you, John Hagel, for those insights from The Edge, co-founder of the Center for The Edge. He's been speaking at the Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna. I'm Peter Day. This is the Drucker Forum Report. More podcasts coming up soon.